In today's programme, we interview an archaeologist to learn how what might be classed as a part of history draws heavily on techniques we use in science. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. With no more ado, we'll go straight on to hear today's guest, our first archaeologist on a show that's normally devoted to chemistry, physics and biology. Dr John Creese is from the MacDonald Institute for Archaeology here in Cambridge. I was frankly intrigued to know what his subject is about and to find out what we have in common. Archaeology is is now popped up, in, I noticed, on the Cambridge Science Festival, but it's not actually clear to everyone, especially even a scientist, what archaeology is. So what do you study? Archaeology is really a, a huge field. It covers essentially the full range of human experience. So from the first members of the genus Homo, when they started using tools about two and a half million years ago, right up to the recent past. So anything's fair game in archaeology. And so as a result, the kinds of questions that we ask range from hyper sort of scientific questions about ecology, evolution, to much more humanistic and social kinds of questions, such as about religious religious systems, belief systems, that sort of thing. Most of us think that archaeologists dig underground. How true is that? <laughs> Fieldwork is a major part of what archaeologists do, but it's not the only thing. We need to go out and dig to collect information about um, past human lives. So yeah, most archaeologists have a field component, but many archaeologists also work in museums and places like that on collections that have been gathered by fieldwork in the past. So these are archaeological objects, everyday things. Most of it is essentially garbage or trash from people's everyday lives, and it develops at uh, residence sites. And archaeologists can go out and, and collect those objects, and we can do a whole lot with them. We can understand everything from you know what people ate to the kinds of beliefs that they may have had and everything in between. Okay. Well, if I look at this pen on this table here, it's a very cheap pen somebody's left behind. So I will assume that the person is perhaps a cheapskate and steals <laughs> pens from shops. <laughs> right. So how, how accurate do you feel that are the sorts of things that archaeologists do? It can't be pure guesswork. There is a kind of misconception that it's highly speculative and that we just sit around making stories up about what we find. But actually, we use a lot of hard science techniques to characterize the materials that things are made out of, um, to understand where they come from, for instance. And we use statistics to understand, in the case of, of your pens, what proportion of pens at a site are your sort of simple Bic pens and how many people had a fancy fountain pen, rather. Mm -hmm. And then we can start to look at the kind of social difference between people on that site. When you have enough data, you can start to build up to these more complex questions like, what does this pen mean for the people who use them? Give us some examples of the sorts of things that archaeologists might be dealing with. Archaeologists try to understand how people lived in the past. So they ask... Initially, very simple questions. What were the people on this site doing? What did they eat? How long were they at a site? Is this an individual household? Was it occupied for thousands of years? 
Is this a town, a city? All those sorts of questions are the first things that we asked when we try and build up a picture of what was going on, both at a site and then regionally as well. Then we start to ask questions about what the political organization might have been. Do we have a situation where we have multiple large centers with several thousand people interacting as some sort of polity, or do we have a much smaller scale of society? And we use ethnographic analogies and historical analogies to try and understand from contemporary cultural examples what was going on in the past. Are there other kinds of archaeology? Are there, are there branches of archaeology? Absolutely. So there are many branches of archaeology. As I say, it's this, this very big, big tent discipline. So you have people who would brand themselves as archaeological scientists, mm-hmm. and they study things like geoarchaeologists study site formation. So the way in which layers of sediments build up over time. And that's very important for understanding the chronology of a site. If you have something like a a tell, which is these large mounds, town mounds essentially in places like Turkey, that build up over centuries of people living in one spot, you need to understand the processes, the amount of time that elapses between levels. That's just one example. Other branches take on things like looking at for instance, artwork that might fall into a much more humanistic perspective of the human past. So people who look at rock art um, from the Paleolithic, for example, and try and understand the belief system that was behind it. So you can sort of picture many different types of archaeological practice between those. You have economic approaches that look at trade and exchange patterns within empires, such as the Roman Empire. So all these different types of questions come under the broad category of archaeology. You would be, at some point, coming over to the science department to borrow some bits and pieces? <laughs> yeah, we borrow a lot um, from various different scientific disciplines, and, and a lot of the techniques are now fully incorporated into the, the normal operations of archaeology. So, for instance, at the MacDonald Institute here at Cambridge, We have um, six different sort of specialized labs that look at different aspects of archaeological science, ranging from the geoarchaeology that I mentioned to um, bioarchaeology, which looks at people's interactions with plants and animals. So this is looking at reconstructing climates and climate change, past environments, um, but also the origins of agriculture, so how people initially started interacting with plants and animals that led to domestication of crops and various animals. Mm -hmm. Archaeogenetics is another interesting and relatively new branch. So this is looking at both uh, fossil DNA and also um, the DNA of contemporary plants, animals, and humans to infer things like the movement of crops and humans over landscapes. So there's a project at Cambridge, for instance, that's analyzing the interaction or the exchange of uh, different crops between China and and Western Asia. Wow. What are phytoliths? Yeah, so under that category of bioarchaeology and the study of climate, one of the techniques that people use is the study of phytoliths. And this is kind of an interesting example of how science meets these wider archaeological questions Phytoliths are small bits of silica that develop within plant cells. Okay. And unlike most of the plant, 
plant will decay and, and be gone, but these little structures remain, and they remain in soil. They can also adhere to various types of artifacts, so you'll find them on actually teeth as well. Oh. So it can tell you about the types of plants that people were eating or the types of plants that they may have been grinding on a, a grinding stone, say. And we can recover those phytoliths and usually identify them to the, the, the broad family. So we could perhaps distinguish maize from beans. So then you can start to answer questions about, okay, what were people eating at this site? You can also use them to look at climatic change. So phytoliths also develop in layers in lake sediments, for instance. Mm -hmm. So by coring those sediments, then you can start to look at the plants that were deposited in those different layers. And if you can date those layers, then you can look at the change in the plants that were growing in, the, in that vicinity through time. So those are some of the techniques that we do in order to understand the, the wider environment surrounding a site and how that might have impacted the people that lived there. So the, the way people live is kind of key to this? Have I misunderstood something about archaeology I should have learned a long time ago? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the, it's, it's, uh, it's a human, humanistic uh, discipline. So um, we're not studying dinosaurs or anything totally unrelated to, to humans. It's broadly a social science. So we want to understand how human lives have changed since the beginning of humans on the earth. A lot of people would say that we've got pretty good at living. So my question is, what have we got to learn that will help us? Yeah, that's an absolutely key question, I think, for archaeology to grapple with. You might think that we've gotten very good at living, and, and if you look around at all the quote-unquote advanced technologies that mm -hmm. we have today, we, we might sort of pat ourselves on the back. But we continuously are experiencing the same kind of problems and crises that people experienced in the past. So things like climate change, for instance, these kinds of fluctuations have happened before. And archaeology can study the way that various populations actually experience those crises, when and how people were resilient and able to come through them, and the cases in which populations actually were decimated or, in fact, occasionally went extinct. In a way, we can, we can take these cases as lessons to be applied to contemporary uh, situations. And who's listening to you? <laughs> There's a growing interest, a growing awareness of what archaeology does and the kind of answers that we can provide. And so more and more you'll see it in, in popular magazines, that sort of thing. So, so, John, tell us how you're incorporating this archaeology into your research. Broadly, my research is interested in looking at how village formation affects um, social interactions. How do people cope with that process? So in many parts of the world, around the time when we get the first agriculture, the first crops being grown, we also have processes of sedentism. So people are settling down on the landscape. They're, they're moving together and forming stable communities, larger villages, and that poses a lot of problems socially. How do people learn to get along, essentially? And when you're living in small hunter-gatherer bands, a lot of those, those social pressures associated with living in larger groups aren't there. People can simply walk away if they don't want to live together. So 
it turns out to be kind of a crucible of culture change in many parts of the world in this critical early village period. So I'm, I'm really interested in what happens in social organization. One of the ways that I'm doing that, I, I work in Eastern North America on uh, Native American society, um, the Iroquoian peoples. And there we have a very rapid period between about 1000 AD and 1500 AD in which we have this sedentarization or village formation process, and the villages get rapidly much, much larger. And so people are potentially grappling with these scalar issues at that time. And one of the things that we see in terms of the archaeology in this period is that the material culture begins to change very rapidly. So by this I'm referring to things like um, pottery and smoking pipes. So clay smoking pipes were initially quite a rare object on these sites. But in the period that I'm looking at, around 1400, um, they suddenly kind of explode in popularity. And they also become incredibly diverse. And they're exchanged over a wider eastern North American region. We know from the early contact period history that the exchange of smoking pipes is really important in solidifying uh, trade relations between various political groups, so different Iroquoian tribes creating alliances and that sort of thing mm. um, through the exchange of various types of goods. I'm quite interested in the exchange of pipes and understanding how pipe exchange was linked in with this process of creating tribal identities, essentially, and managing kind of political relations between them. One of the cool techniques that we can use to to understand those trade relations is to actually look at what's called the fabric of the ceramic pipe. Okay. So this is essentially using a technique called laser ablation, ICPMS, Goodness. which is a, a really fancy term for zapping your pottery pipe with a laser and measuring the elemental composition of it. Essentially, that allows us to look at the sources of raw material, the clay that was used to make the pipe. And then we can identify the, the kind of sources for uh, different pipes in the region. So if you're looking at a site, you can see, okay, some of these pipes were obtained from this group over here. Some were made locally. And so we can start to put together a picture of how these different local polities are interacting um, through the trade. That's me. So you're not outsourcing this analysis. It's now in-house. In my case, I'm doing it actually at the, the Field Museum in Chicago. So they've, they basically have a dedicated machine and lab set up to do that. Oh, I see. Yeah. How does archaeology become scientific and, should we say, earn its place at the Cambridge Science Festival? Right. Great question. As if you're begging. Yeah. <laughs> um, so although it has this kind of humanistic slant to it, um, it's always also been closely aligned to the natural sciences. So, for instance, in the 19th century, early archaeologists were doing things directly comparable to natural history. They're collecting artifacts and placing them in sort of evolutionary sequences to try and understand technological change. And that was kind of the, the early emphasis there. And so actually it, it has had this link to natural history and, and the natural sciences ever since the beginnings. In the 1960s, there was a concerted effort to rebrand archaeology as explicitly a science. 
a signs of humankind, essentially. And so at that point, especially in the United States, a number of people emphasized human ecology approaches to archaeology. So especially understanding how things like climate change influenced culture over time. More recently, this has been seen as just one part of the overall project of science. But since the 1960s, we've had all these hard science methods come in, like radiocarbon dating and things like laser ablation, ICPMS, and other methods to characterize materials. And so all these methods then allow us to build up those little questions about what people ate and how they lived to answer those larger questions about how social groups can change and the ways in which culture and environment interact. Can you tell me how archaeology is different from history? Oh, that's a great question. You could see there are two ways to think about that. One is that archaeology is a form of history, but it uses material evidence rather than texts. That would be the, the classical definition. So history relies on written documents to tell the story of human past, and archaeology is all about artifacts and what we can actually find in the world on the ground. So just different sources of evidence, but they're both forms of history. In the United States and Canada, the, the tradition is a little bit different because archaeology is generally subsumed within anthropology, um, and so seen more as a, a science of how human culture operates in the past and more recently. Um, so it's a little bit of a different twist. But I think, in general, most archaeologists are happy with being seen as in historical science anyway. Anthropology is generally the study of human cultures and societies in, in the contemporary world. So looking at both the West and also non-Western cultures, basically whatever's happening in the world today and the recent historical past, but not relying heavily on deeper historical information. So that's, that's the difference between social anthropology and archaeology. We go deep time because we have this record that allows us to do that. Excellent. People may be interested in this, but they've had very little introduction to it at school. What got you interested in archaeology? I think it was doing a, a science fair project. So in I don't know if they do this here, but in, mm. in Canada we have science fair projects. It was maybe a little bit random, but I chose archaeology, and then I started reading about it. And I discovered ancient Egypt, and, and it's just really fascinating, the, the amazing finds that were made uh, there. And that got me thinking about the overall scope of human history and how deep it is. And so I think that was the bug that bit me, and it's been with me ever since. So what kind of archaeological science happens here in Cambridge? Almost all kinds of archaeological science. Um, we have six different dedicated labs, and they range from geoarchaeology, or the study of how sites form, bioarchaeology, which is the study of interaction of humans with plants and animals, archaeogenetics, which is studying DNA and, and the transfer of genetics over space and time, um, zooarchaeology, which is the study of animal remains, so we can look at diet and things like that, and also isotopes, so these are chemical isotopes, things like nitrogen and oxygen, and they can help us understand all sorts of questions about 
for instance, where a person may have been born and consumed food in their early years, and then if they move to another place and die, then we can find their place of origin based on those isotopes. So movements, um, diet, the environment, all these kinds of things. Goodness me. Thank you, John. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Kreese. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>